Um, we're going to do now what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever that is, would you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 1. And when you found that, if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? When I'm finished reading, I will say, this is God's Word, and if you would like to join me, you can say, thanks be to God. Matthew writes this, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me just pray for us quickly, and uh, we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word now? Uh, break down every barrier and hindrance to what you want to accomplish today through this word. And I pray that you would accomplish that in each one of us, your good plan, your good path, your good will. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Many of you will recognize, perhaps, that uh, well-known warning given by Dr. Bruce Banner, the renowned physicist of the Marvel Comics series, who, as a result of some failed experiments with gamma radiation, occasionally, at times, turns into a huge, massive, smashing machine, also known as the Hulk. This happens whenever he's angered. So it's, it's not an idle threat. It's not an empty sort of promise that he's making here. Uh, he really is saying, you, you wouldn't like me. And if you think about it, having a force like that on your side, like having him fighting for you, is, is pretty much a guarantee of victory over any force that might try to come against you. Hulk's on your team, probably going to win. But what do you do when the battle begins, you step up to the battle lines, and although he's there with you, Dr. Bruce Banner, much to your confusion, much to your disappointment, shock, fear, um, the other guy, the, the big green guy who can actually do something, he doesn't come out. And, and you're standing there, the people are coming at you, you're just kind of like, um, okay, so anytime now, and he's just not, he's not showing up. If you've seen, of course, uh, Avengers Infinity War, you know this exact thing happens when uh, the Hulk is going through some kind of an existential crisis or whatever it is, can't seem to come out when uh, he's called upon, leaving those who'd, who'd put their trust in him to help secure their victory, now beginning to wonder if they put their faith in the wrong person. And of course, that's a made-up scenario from a film. Uh, a great film. But the reality is, 
we do this exact same thing all the time, every day. From our Amazon purchases to our marriage partners. Namely, we tie our faith, we tie our belief in someone or something to our expectations of them. We tie our belief in someone to our expectations of them. And when those expectations are disappointed, when it doesn't look like we thought it was going to look like, when it doesn't help the way we thought it was supposed to, we, even the best of us, begin to lose faith. And I think, as you look at our passage today, I think that's exactly what you see going on here as sitting in a prison cell awaiting his execution, John the Baptist is beginning to have serious doubts as to whether or not he backed the right horse, as to whether or not he had uh, announced the, the correct, the, the right Messiah. The question, which I have no doubt most, if not all of us, have asked in our own lives as well, as it relates to our own walk with Jesus, Maybe not sitting in a prison cell, no, but maybe sitting in the wreckage of a failed plan that didn't work out as you were hoping it would. Maybe sitting uh, in, in the wreckage of, of a desperate need where you were trusting God to support you and show up, and yet as far as you could see, God was a no-show. He didn't help the way you prayed. He didn't show up like you needed him to. And now you're beginning to wonder, is any of this real? Am I... Am I putting my faith in the wrong thing? So in light of that reality, what I'm, what I'm hoping will come out of today's passage, our time together here, having learned at least a little better to do, is, is what do we do when we start to feel that way? How do we manage disappointed expectations with God and not lose our faith in Him in the process? That's what I want to talk about today. And in order to help us grasp that learning and, and hopefully see what it is that, that Matthew is revealing to us here, I want to look at this passage in just three simple ways. That's how we're going to break it up. We'll look at uh, the context of disappointment. We're going to look at the evidence of fulfillment. And then very lastly, in closing, I want to talk about the call to embrace the offense of Jesus. It's those three things. So if you still have a Bible with you, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it again to that passage, follow along with me, Matthew 11, beginning of verse 1, as we explore the, the reality of disappointed expectations with God that you will undoubtedly experience, if you haven't already, and see how it is that Jesus responds to us in the midst of the questions and the doubts that often result when that happens. Okay, so let's look first of all at the context of disappointment context of disappointment. And, and if you look with me, beginning at verse 2 and 3 of our passage here, this is where you begin to see the expression of John's disappointment. Verse 2, we learn that John is in prison right now. This is something uh, Matthew told us back in chapter 4, and we don't actually learn the whole backstory of how he got there until chapter 14, but he, he's in prison right now. And the sense is, that we seem to get, is that John has been, I don't know, like Facebook stalking Jesus, uh, in his ministry from his prison cell. He's, he's sending out the disciples to kind of find out what's going on with this. You know, I've been in prison. I can't see what he's doing. They bring back reports when they visit him to tell him what's going on. But now, this time, instead of uh, disciples coming to John to tell him, John is now sending his disciples out to Jesus to ask Jesus a very specific question. 
saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Which, I mean, that's, that sounds kind of like very formal, very proper kind of a question, kind of sounds like I, I imagine that being something like you hear in a Shakespearean play, are you the one to come, shall we look for another? I, I like the way that Eugene Peterson kind of rephrases his question in his uh, New Testament paraphrase, the message, when he asks the question this way, are you the one we've been expecting, or are we still waiting? And although it's not underlined or italicized in any way, I think the emphasis of John's question is actually on the first two words of it. Which is just to say, I don't think John's question is, are you the one that we've, that, who is to come? Are, are you the one we've been expecting? But are you the one we've been expecting? Like, like are you? And the reason I say that is because from the moment John first met Jesus and baptized him down at the Jordan River, Believing and telling everyone that Jesus was the one that they'd been waiting for is exactly what John has been doing this whole time. I mean, you look back to chapter 3 of Matthew, this is where you see John. He's preaching and teaching down by the river. He's baptizing people, and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then the Apostle John, in his gospel, his account of what, of what happens with John, we learn that when John the Baptist sees Jesus step out of the crowd and come forward to be baptized, he calls out to everyone who can hear, everyone in earshot, hey, 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 behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So my point is, believing Jesus was the one that they've been waiting for, is what John the Baptist had been doing this whole time. And yet now, all of a sudden, it's as though John's no longer so sure that he got it right. Why? Well, the short answer is because of what I said when we began this morning. I think John's faith is failing because his faith in Jesus was tied directly to his expectations of the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be when he came. Right or wrong, when those expectations were disappointed, when Jesus didn't carry out the kind of fiery, axe-swinging ministry that he believed that the Messiah was going to do, when he's still sitting and rotting in prison here, when he wants to be out there ministering for the kingdom, eventually John's faith, that he had rightly identified the one who was to come, began to crumble, began to fail. Jesus had disappointed his expectations of what the Messiah would be like. And actually, if, if you read this whole story in, in Matthew chapter 3, if you go back, you'll see that Jesus had actually been disappointing John's expectations right from the beginning, right from the very first moment, as rather than baptizing John and then kind of rallying the troops to take on Rome and cleanse Israel, make them a, a nation again. Instead, Jesus had asked John to baptize him and then taken off on a 40-day personal retreat. So... He's kind of like, right from the get-go, he's like, this doesn't seem like... I like the way uh, F.D. Bruner captures the disappointment of John the Baptist perfectly when he writes, In John's eyes, Jesus was, from the very first, a little baffling, a little strange, less messianic than he had expected, and less cataclysmic than he had preached. So, are you the one who is to come, or, or, or are we still waiting? And as we read about the context of John's disappointment, like what led him to that disappointment, and the resulting questions that emerged, 
I wonder if any of that sounds at all familiar to you. I wonder if it doesn't remind you of some of the very same questions and doubts that maybe you've had yourself in the midst of your own new life with Jesus. But that maybe you felt like ashamed that you were even having questions, like oh, I shouldn't have these questions and doubts. Or, or maybe that you felt too embarrassed to share those doubts with anyone else, but you're still having them and you don't know what to do with it. Maybe, maybe you started out so strong in your walk with Jesus after you came to faith, after you got out of that conference, out of that Sunday gathering, but then hours, days, months later, all of a sudden it started to come out that like, you know what, following Jesus is actually a lot harder than I thought. Or come on, following Jesus is a lot duller than I thought it was going to be. And, and you don't know what to do with that. You don't know what to do with those feelings. You don't know who you can talk to about that. Maybe you'd been praying for something. Praying for someone with like everything you had for days and weeks. And, and then they still died. They still left. They, they, they still were never found. And, and your faith is just taking a pummeling because your expectations of what God was going to do were disappointed. And there's so much more that we could say about that. I mean, man, we could sit here this morning and talk about, you know, the theology of all that. We could talk about God's sovereignty in all things. We could talk about how, the, the way that God, uh, His ability to see the, the circumstances that look so hard to us, He can see them from beginning to end in a way that we, we could never see with our kind of painfully small slice of, of perspective that we have on things. We could do all that but for the moment, for, for right in this moment. What I want to ask you to do instead is simply this. Can we just pause for a moment? Stop and find strength, find hope, find comfort in seeing that John the Baptist, like the, the forerunner who, who is going to announce the coming of the Messiah, the one who a little later in Matthew 11 here, Jesus is going to say, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. That John still had doubts and questions about Jesus himself. And look, found it perfectly acceptable to bring those doubts directly to Jesus. Just be like, what are you going to do about that? Could seeing that give you even the tiniest bit of hope that if John's circumstances could cause him to experience disappointment in Jesus, could cause John to say, Jesus, my circumstances don't line up with my expectations and I'm having trouble believing you. Then maybe it's okay for you to feel like that sometimes too. And, and could seeing the way that John brings those doubts and questions directly to Jesus, doesn't try to hide them, doesn't try to explain them away, he just lays them down in front of him and says, what are you going to do? Could that also help you to see that maybe it's okay for you to do that as well? Because I think, I think here's, here's John's process. I think his process is, man, I'm really struggling here. This does not compute. These two pictures do not go together. Jesus, you're, you're not living up to my expectations of what I thought you were going to be like. And so his process is, I'm just going to tell him. I'm just going to tell him he's not. And if he blows me off, if he's like, oh, dare you question me, or, or if he's got no answer at all, then I'll know I'm wrong. And if he is who I believe he is, then he can handle my questions and doubts. And what's so cool is that as we read on, we see, no, Jesus, I, 
really is exactly the one that John was expecting, and he absolutely could. He could handle John's questions and doubts, no problem whatsoever. But, but let that be an encouragement to you already this morning. Having questions and doubts, feeling disappointed with Jesus at times, that's not the problem. Pretending that you never do it. Trying to act like, I'm just trusting the Lord. Cool, but sometimes we're not. And just pretending like you do isn't going to make you feel more like you are. And if Jesus really is who he said he was, then he can handle it. He can handle those doubts and questions and disappointments whenever you bring them to him. Okay, that's, that's the context of disappointment. Next thing I want to look at together with you is the evidence of fulfillment. We need to look at this because implicit within John's question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another, is the question really of a broken commitment, of kind of a false hope, like, like kind of is Jesus a question of whether or not he's truly living out, living up to, whether he's fulfilling everything that the Old Testament prophets and scriptures had said the Messiah was going to be like. The reason John's asking that is because, according to him, Jesus isn't. So when you go back again, Matthew chapter 3, and you listen to John preaching about the Messiah's coming, you get a very clear picture of the kind of Messiah that John was expecting. Uh, for example, after talking about this one who's coming after him, who's greater than him, John says this of Jesus, or of the Messiah, anyway, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Luke's Gospel recounts John preaching, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, that therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, so clearly, John has this very clear picture of what the Messiah would be like when he came. And what I need you to know is that he wasn't wrong. John wasn't wrong about the Messiah coming in power to, to cleanse the world of sin's curse, to, to punish all injustice, to... to uh, bring his beloved ones into his embrace for all time. That's exactly who the Messiah is and what the Messiah comes to do. So, so John wasn't wrong at all about who the Messiah was or what he would do. He was just wrong about when he would do all that stuff. What we learned from Jesus' own mouth and to which the Old Testament scriptures also testify is that before bringing the justice of God, Jesus would first have to bear the justice of God before restoring God's people back to relationship with him, he would first have to redeem them. So yes, at, at his trial, for example, before the religious rulers, Jesus lays out very much John's kind of picture. When, when, when being quiet and saying nothing maybe could have exonerated Jesus, instead he speaks right up. They're like, are you the Messiah? And he says, yes. And you will see the Son of Man coming with power and with the clouds of heaven. So he's like, that picture is right, and yet this time, hear, hear the words, this time, in Jesus' words when he says, the Son of Man came this time, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for me. So that's why, in response to John's questions and doubts relayed through him to his disciples, Jesus responds there in verse 4 and 5, look at Look with me by saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. 
very quickly those, those two things. Tell John what you hear. I think that's a direct reference to Jesus teaching about the kingdom that we have in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, tell John about what I've been saying about, about the kingdom I'm kind, the kind of kingdom I'm bringing, a kingdom where, where blessed are those who, who mourn, they'll, they'll be comforted, where, where blessed are the poor in spirit, where blessed are those who, who are persecuted, who are put in prison for my name's sake, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then, on top of that, tell John what you see which I think is a direct reference to the evidence of, of all Jesus' kingdom miracles, the evidence of the kind of kingdom he was bringing, which we saw in chapters 8 and 9. Many of which Jesus lists here, the, the kind of miracles he performed, but if you know, are also quoted almost verbatim by the prophet Isaiah's depiction of what God's chosen anointed servant would do when he came in Isaiah 61. In fact, Matthew doesn't record it for us here, but in Luke's gospel, he records Jesus' very first public teaching, which is actually directly out of that text. Jesus stands up in the synagogue, opens up the scroll of Isaiah to go Isaiah 61, and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls up that scroll, sits down, and says, Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. So as you see, Jesus, he receives John's questions and doubts gladly, without, without rebuke, without surprise or reprise. And then, what is he doing here? He's seeking to clarify John's expectations. Clarify John's expectations of who the Messiah is, what the kingdom that he's inaugurating on this first coming looks like in order to help calm his fears in order to help calm his, his, his doubts and questions. But maybe he'd, he'd be wrong about Jesus and they were still waiting for someone else. Jesus is saying, look, I really am fulfilling all the things the scriptures said about the Messiah's coming, John. I'm doing it. And as you think about what this might look like to do this yourself, as you think about doing what John is doing here yourself, bringing your own doubts and questions to Jesus bringing your disappointments to him. I wonder if in doing that, also like John, you'd allow yourself to be open enough, to trust in the goodness of God enough, to allow Jesus to clarify your expectations as well. I think that's, that's so, so important in the process of doing this because here's the thing. It's going to sound confusing at first, so follow me. The reality is a lot of times, I think the reason we come away from these kinds of interactions with Jesus still feeling disappointed, still feeling doubtful, is because you brought your disappointed expectations to Jesus. Great. But you brought your disappointed expectations with expectations of how Jesus needed to answer in order to restore your faith in him. Literally, you're like, okay, God, so I, and I know that didn't go the way I was expecting. Wow, that sure didn't happen like I was praying. Um, so I want to bring these disappointments. I want to bring these doubts to you like Pastor West was saying. It's good. God, I know you're good. You know your plans are good. So what I'm going to need you to do is, and, and then we just lay out a, a detailed plan of what it is that God needs to do now in order to make it better now. This is what you should have done. This is what you didn't do. And this is what you need to do now. We, we lay out our expectations in front of him, and I'm sorry to be the one to have to tell you this, but that's not at all how this works. 
we bring our questions and doubts to Jesus in order to gain his divine perspective, in order to gain his clarity, not, not to instruct him about what the best outcome should have been or should now be. Because that's going to put us right back in the same position of disappointed expectations. If it has to look like this, when I bring my disappointment, it's got to be this picture of how I think restoration looks like. We're going to be disappointed. In fact, you, you actually see this very thing in Jesus' response to John. Right? John brings his disappointment and uh, disappointed expectations to Jesus, and, and then Jesus clarifies his expectations in order to calm his doubts and fears. But notice, in Jesus' response to John, he also leaves out a key sentence from that passage in Isaiah 61. Namely, the whole part about bringing liberty to the captives. You notice in his response to John, he doesn't say that part. I remember hearing a pastor years ago, it was, it was funny, talking about just kind of imagining how John might respond when his disciples come back to him after visiting with Jesus and kind of relaying his response and him listening to the response and kind of recognizing Isaiah 61 in there. And then they finish and him saying, all right, oh, thanks, thanks guys. Um, it was, did he say anything else? Any, any, uh, did he say anything like, like that sounded like liberty to captive? No? See? His expectations could have put him right back in the same point of this same place of disappointed expectations. Because if if fixing what's wrong meant releasing him from prison, then he's going to be disappointed, right? Because literally, as this pastor put it, what Jesus is ultimately saying to John is, yes, I am the one you were expecting, and you're going to die in prison. How crushing would be the disappointment if it had to look a certain way in order for Jesus to clarify his expectations. And no, like, hear me, that doesn't mean that Jesus is always or often going to respond in such a negative way when we bring our questions and doubts and disappointments to him. No, I mean, this was a very specific call that God had on John's life to carry out. But the point at the end of the day is that you still need to guard your heart against bringing disappointed expectations to God, but bringing them with expectations of how he has to respond, how he must respond in order to restore your faith. Don't get caught in that trap. I mean, as much as you're able. And when you do, when you recognize in the moment, I'm doing that, actually. I'm, I'm bringing my expectations of how you need to respond because God knows we all do this. When you recognize that you're doing it, I think, I think the only thing to do in that moment is just stop. Just like put down Bible, put down journal, stop whatever prayer you're praying, and just pause, and then just say very simply, God, show me who you are. Show me what your plans are for me. Pray, God, I need you to replace the version of you I've created in my head with the reality of who you truly are. God, replace my version of what's best with the vision of your good plan for me. I'll tell you what, that, that's a prayer that I know God will absolutely respond to. And that's a prayer that will actually bring hope, that will actually bring clarity to your questions and doubts. But can we just be real for a moment and acknowledge that that's a lot harder to do than it sounds? 
A, it's just hard to recognize that we're doing it, to catch ourselves doing that in the moment, and then to pray that prayer of, of surrender and submission, incredibly hard to do. And I think the reason it's so hard, if we could just bring our own clarity to it, is because at the end of the day, although we might never say it out loud, we believe we know better than God how our lives should go. We're like, I'm here, I'm me, I'm living this, I know what the best outcome would be. I know what the best outcome is for me. We, we definitely know what the best outcome is for other people. And you saw John the Baptist believing this very thing. Again, Matthew 3. He tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. When he's like, Jesus, that's not how this is supposed to go. You're supposed to be baptizing me. Here, let's switch places. Uh, Peter does the same thing. Later on, Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be handed over to the religious rulers. I'm going to be put to death. And Peter pulls him aside. It's like, no, no, let, let, let me give you an alternate perspective on that. I think it's a little bit better than yours. That's, that's never going to happen to you. We think we know so well what's best for us, and so that's why we find it so hard to do. We find it so hard to do because it's offensive. It's offensive to have our expectations of what is best challenged. It's offensive to be told we don't see the full picture in the way that someone else does. It's offensive. Come on. And so that's actually the last thing I want to look at together with you in closing, is the call to embrace the offense of Jesus to embrace the offense of Jesus. And where you see that call is in verse 6 of our passage. Look there with me. After receiving John's questions and doubts, his disappointments, and then clarifying those expectations with the reality, he was fulfilling the, the ministry. He was fulfilling the work of the one that John was expecting. Jesus concludes with this simple beatitude. He says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Offended, it's the Greek word scandalizo, from which we get our English word scandalized. It's the idea of, of being uh, stumbling or falling over something. Uh, something is so horrific, so offensive to you that you turn away from it in repulsion. Jesus says, blessed are the ones who don't do that as it relates to me, who don't stumble over me. And I love the way... Uh, Tim Keller kind of sets up this call from Jesus in his own work on this passage because he reminds us of the truth that you don't warn somebody not to be offended unless you know what you're about to say is offensive. We've all had that. Somebody come up to you and be like, listen, now don't be offended, but I just want to tell you, you know you're about to be offended. That's kind of awesome. That's what Jesus is doing here. I think that's so encouraging and empowering about this call is that in speaking God's blessing over the one who is not offended by him, Jesus is acknowledging the reality that what he's calling us to is offensive. It's going to feel hard. It's going to offend your pride and your sensibilities. He's acknowledging the difficulty in all of us of submitting our expectations of what we think is best to his superior definition. I'm going to offend you, says Jesus. And I think we can trust that he knows how hard that is to do, particularly because of what we looked at uh, over Easter and Good Friday and talked about how in his humanity, how Jesus struggled so hard to surrender his expectations of what he thought was best to his fathers. He thought, take this cup away from me. That's, that's what works best here. But then surrendered himself and submitted himself to the father's definition of best. And my hope is that, I mean, even just looking at that, if we could focus on that and consider how Jesus embraced an infinitely more offensive call 
and taking on the cup filled with the fullness of God's wrath against sin and drinking it to the dregs. And looking at that, it might grant us encouragement. It might grant us faith to take on whatever infinitely smaller offense Jesus might call us to experience. But more than that, I think, I think we can embrace Jesus' call to offense because of the blessing that he promises will accompany embracing that call. And notice, it's not a blessing for himself. Jesus isn't saying, you, you bless me when you surrender yourself to my will, when you bring your offenses to me when, and, and trust me to clarify those expectations. He's not saying he's blessed. I mean, I, I think he is. But he's saying you will be blessed. The blessing is yours when you do that. My, my goodness, my favor, my embrace is yours when you're willing to accept and embrace this call to offense. And well, yeah, I mean, specifically in this passage, this, this is a call to John. I think it's easy to see how this same blessing could apply equally, equally well to any. Any who, from that time onwards, continue to struggle with the offense of surrendering their expectations of how they believe life would work best to God. I think this is a call to all of us and a promise to all of us. I think Jesus is saying to John, but he's also saying to you and to me, he's saying, blessed are you, first of all, my, my blessings are poured out on the ones who overcome the assumed offense of their questions and doubts and bring them to me anyways. I think that's the first part. Blessed are you when, when you're not afraid to offend me with your questions and doubts and disappointments. I see them already. I already know you're feeling that. Blessed are you when you trust me enough to bring them to me. But then, as it relates to this part that we're looking at here, he says, my blessings are lavished on the one who embraces the offensiveness of my call. Offensiveness to yourself, offensiveness to others who, who look on what I'm doing and are offended by that. You're blessed when, when you're willing to surrender your definition of good to me. And blessed is the one who does not tie their faith in me to their circumstances who doesn't look at the difficult circumstances of their life in the moment and say, God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God can't help. You're blessed when you see that's not true. And lastly, blessed is the one who comes to know me for who I truly am, and not the idealized version of me and my plans that they've created in their heads. And you get to know who I am and what I'm truly like. That, that's the blessing found in Jesus' call to embrace what he knows is the offense of himself, what he knows is offensive to our pride, to our expectations. And, and that's also how we can learn to manage disappointment, to manage disappointed expectations within God without losing our faith in him. Ah, well, very simple. Because it's in embracing the call to offense in Jesus that, first of all, more and more over time, we come to see God for who He truly is, which, think about that, that that's going to then better help shape our expectations of Him. When we get to know what He's truly like, we're going to make different expectations of Him because we see what He's really like, and it's not that idealized version in our head. And in submitting our definition of best to His superior definition, how we learn to wait on Him and not lose faith whenever our own expectations are disappointed is because we've come to learn over time. We've come to learn through experience that he will always be faithful to fulfill his good promises to us in his perfect way and in his perfect time. So 
one of the challenges of a call like this to hear about it, maybe maybe agree and think, yeah, that's that sounds good and that sounds right, and then service ends and it's like, where are we going for lunch? Oh, I gotta make sure I call my mom or whatever, and and we just forget about it. So what I wanted to do in closing this morning, before we go to the Lord's Supper, I want to create some space for a moment for you to express, if you have them, some of your own disappointed hopes in Jesus this morning. Where has he let you down? Where does it feel like he's let you down? And we talked about already this morning, some, sometimes our experience with mothers is disappointing, and we're like, where were you? These circumstances of my life don't line up, and I'm having trouble believing you. I want to just create some space for a few minutes to just pray those prayers to Jesus, trusting he, he welcomes them, he's not offended by them, and trusting, and then opening ourselves with that prayer, God, show me what you're truly like, and show me what your good plan truly is. Clarify my expectations. So we're going to take a few minutes to do that together right now.